Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. We started this worship service this morning looking at the beginning of Revelation, looking at the throne of God, the one who is and who was and is to come, looking at Jesus, the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to our God. And just now, we've looked forward to that day that we will see Jesus face to face. That day when he welcomes us into paradise. That day when the the sorrows will be over. That day when we will see clearly. And as we look at these, these letters, we're continuing in a series looking at the, the seven letters that begin the book of Revelation, what the Spirit says to the churches. Really, the book of Revelation is a book for the churches, for local churches, to know how to be in between now and that day. How do we live faithfully as the church of Jesus Christ today, in light of that day. In between Jesus' first coming where he came and he died as a substitute for sinners. And he rose again, conquering every enemy. In between that day and the day that he comes back and he establishes his kingdom once and for all. Where his victory was accomplished, his victory was won in his death and resurrection, but his victory is, is fully realized, fully lived out in that second coming, in that day that is to come when Jesus returns. In between those two days, in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, how do we live faithfully? How do we live as the church of Jesus Christ? And the picture that Jesus gives us right at the outset of Revelation that we've seen already and refresh your memory, this picture that Jesus gives John of what the church is to look like is a lampstand. We're to be lights shining into this present darkness. Jesus gives John this vision of himself, this glorious vision, this bright vision. Eyes with a flame of fire, feet that are like shiny metal, uh, holding stars in his hand. A face shining bright as the sun in full strength. Jesus is the light of the world and he sees his churches as lampstands which are to shine his light into the darkness. So as we come to Revelation chapter 3, we're looking at the letter to the church in Sardis, one of the seven lampstands. We hear Jesus' message to Sardis, and we hear one of the messages that Jesus wants, to, wants all of his churches 
to hear, as we all seek to be lampstands that shine into the darkness, as we all seek to be witnesses to this great Savior who loved us and freed us from our sins by His blood and who will come again, whose face we will see. With that in mind, let's listen to what the Spirit says to our church today. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have. A few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus writes here to the church in the city of Sardis. The city of Sardis had an infamous, uh, even embarrassing history. The city of Sardis, uh, like a lot of cities in, in, in this time had a, a city wall around it for protection, a barrier to keep it safe. And this city was positioned, and part of the wall was up against this very steep cliff, a natural barrier, a barrier thought to be impenetrable, a barrier thought that no one could possibly cross. So this city wall was up against this cliff that, they thought no one could climb, and so when they went to set a guard around the city wall, they didn't station anyone where this cliff was. Instead, they stationed guards in what they thought were the more vulnerable areas of the wall. But what happened to the city of Sardis is that their enemies found a way to exploit the weakness in their guard. What they thought was a place of strength, what they thought was a place of protection, what they took a lot of confidence in, this natural barrier that they thought was keeping them safe, was actually their greatest vulnerability, their greatest weakness. And not just once, but twice in the city's history, the enemies of the city of Sardis were able to climb this cliff go over the city wall without, inter without interference from the guard and invade and attack and take over the city. 
problem with the church of Sardis is that they had an overconfidence in who they thought they were. They had an overconfidence in their reputation as a strong city. They had this, this confidence in, that this wall couldn't possibly be penetrated. That this, this precipice couldn't possibly be ascended. That, that we, we are secure. We are safe. And they grew in complacency as a result. They had a, a reputation. They had a name in their mind. They thought that they were safe. They were strong. They were secure. But in reality... They were weak. And it was the very thing that they took confidence in and as security and strength that their enemy exploited as their weakness. If we're not careful, we can have a, a similar danger in our spiritual lives. And the church in Sardis had a similar danger. They had confidence in the wrong thing. They had a good reputation they thought of themselves as being alive. They were known as being alive. But the very thing that they thought about themselves, the very thing they had their confidence in, their confidence was misplaced. Their confidence was in the name that they had made for themselves. Their confidence was in the name that they had among other people. But they were overconfident. And they weren't what they thought they were. Just like the city of Sardis wasn't what it thought it was, Secure? So the church in Sardis was not what they thought they were. The question I'd like for all of us to consider this morning as we look at this letter and what the Spirit says to our church is, where are you looking for confidence? Where are you looking for confidence? Is it in what you think of yourself? Is it, one, is it in what others say about you? I think what Jesus would have us learn from this letter to Sardis is that if we are to find confidence, if we are to find confidence that we're going to reach that day where we see Jesus face to face, if we're going to have confidence that we belong to him, if we're going to have confidence that, that we can make it, we must Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. As the letter unfolds, we'll see several things about looking to Jesus. Several ways in which we look to Jesus. And first and foremost, we need to look up to who Jesus is. Look up to who Jesus is. Look at this first part of verse 1. Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So Jesus begins like he does in all of these letters with the description of himself. And this description comes in part from the vision that Jesus gives John whenever he comes to him in chapter 1. Uh, the part that comes from that vision is this, this picture of him holding the seven stars. We've even seen this in another one of the letters. Uh, back in chapter 1 and verse 20, John says, or Jesus says to John that as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Churches. We talked about the lampstands before, and here 
Jesus comes to the church in Sardis, he writes and he says, the one that's writing to them is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. It's the idea of, of the angels of the seven churches. So the angels, throughout Revelation, angels are heavenly beings. So they exist in heaven, they're created beings, and they serve God. But throughout Scripture, we also see that these angels serve the church on earth. They're heavenly beings, they serve God, they carry out His will, His purposes, and they also minister uh, to the churches on earth. And in these letters specifically, the angels of each one of these churches represent the churches. So at the very outset of this letter, Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write. And then he goes on and writes the letter. By addressing the angel of the church in Sardis, he's addressing the whole church. It's not like he addresses the angel and then he goes and passes it on to Sardis. No, it's, the, it's a representative. The angel is a representative of of the church. And so for Jesus to hold the seven angels of the seven churches in his right hand is for him to hold the churches in his right hand. It's a picture of authority. He has the seven churches in his hand. You may remember that that number seven is a picture, it's a symbol throughout Revelation of wholeness or completion. So we could say he, he holds all the churches in his right hand. He's in charge. He's the one to whom we're accountable. He's the one with authority. He's the head of the church, the chief shepherd of the sheep. He's the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. So as we look up to who Jesus is as a church, as Christians, as we look up to who Jesus is, we need to look to Jesus' authority. He is the one. To whom we are accountable. It's tempting at times for us as Christians, as a church, to use some other standard besides what Jesus thinks to carry out our life as a Christian, to live out our life as a church. We might think that the measure of a healthy church is and how fast it's growing or what sort of numbers we're producing. We may think we're a healthy church because we've got all of our doctrine right, all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted. We may think that we're a healthy church because we have a really good reputation in our community. Uh, as a pastor, one of the temptations is to look to church experts and say, well, what do they say we should be in? And let's go do that. I'm going to read these books, read these blog posts, and okay, this is what a healthy church is, so I'm going to, okay, we've got to go lead this way, because that's what the experts say we're supposed to do as a church. Or we can compare ourselves to another church and use that standard, like, well, this church seems to be doing something right, so let's try to look more like them. And in all of this, we need to look up to Jesus and his authority, and remember, his is the standard that we need to follow. What we ought to be concerned about as a church is what he says to the churches. How he measures the health of a church. What Sardis was doing is they were complacent and they were content with their reputation for being alive. But what they thought about themselves, what others thought about themselves, wasn't what Jesus thought of them. They said, we're alive. That's our reputation. What others thought was, they're alive. But what Jesus says is, you're dead. 
So we need to remember right from the outset, he is the one holding the seven stars and we need to look up to his authority and always seek to be faithful to him. No matter what others might say, no matter what other standards might be out there, ultimately his standard, his word, what Jesus, the head of the church says, is the most important thing for us as a church. There's another part of this description of Jesus. As we look up to who Jesus is, we also need to see he is the one with the seven spirits of God. Seven spirits of God. So that doesn't come from the the vision of Jesus, but it does come from chapter 1. We read it earlier. Look back with me at chapter 1, verse 4. It's part of our call to worship. John greets the churches that receive the revelation. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Talking about God the Father. And from the seven spirits who were before his throne. So this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, we believe, we affirm that what scripture teaches is that There is one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one Holy Spirit. There are not seven Holy Spirits. So what's going on here? Well, again, the number seven is a symbol for wholeness, completion. The idea is that the fullness of the Holy Spirit is there before the throne of God the Father. Likewise, Jesus is described here as the one who has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits of God. He'll later be described um, as one who has the, the seven spirits. This is a consistent description throughout the book of Revelation. So what do we need to see? Why, why would he write this to the, to the church in Sardis? Well, Jesus is going to tell this church as the letter progresses to wake up. He's going to tell them to strengthen what remains. He's going to tell them to repent. He's going to give them these commands. Jesus is not only, though, the one who gives commands. He also gives power to follow those commands. He's not only the one with the word of command to the church. He's also the one with the whole fullness of the Spirit of God to empower His churches to carry out His commands. The strength that this church needs to wake up from their spiritual slumber, the strength that this church needs to be able to go back to who they were supposed to be as a shining lampstand, that comes from Jesus. The same one who has authority, who calls them to repent, who calls them to be the church that he wants them to be, is also the one who empowers the church for their mission, who empowers the church for obedience to his command. He's the one who holds the seven stars. We need to look up to Jesus as the one with authority. But he's also the one with the seven spirits. We need to look to Jesus for power. Depend on him. Trust him to strengthen us as we seek to be a shining lampstand. A witness in the dark world. As we seek to look to Jesus, we need to look up to who he is. But what we see in the middle part of this letter is we also need to look back to what Jesus said. We need to look up to who Jesus is. 
but we need to look back to what Jesus said. And we'll see that unfold here. The first thing we need to recognize, though, is is the problem that's going on here in Sardis. Look with me at the rest of verse 1 and into verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, it's at this point in most of the other letters, in all of the other letters that he has written so far, it's at this point, right at the beginning of the main the main content of the letter, where he would say something positive. I know your works, how you're doing well in this area. Or I know your situation and how you're being faithful in this persecution. But here, there is no positive thing to say about the church in Sardis. He does not start by commending them. Instead, he gets right to the heart of a serious problem that they have. They have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That word reputation in your Bible might say name. You have a name of being alive. Uh, This is a word that's used throughout this letter. That that word reputation is the same word that's used in verse 4, where he'll say you have a few names in Sardis, or in verse 5, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So that that same word is used in all of those different contexts. This idea of name. They have a name of being alive, but they're dead. Uh, You know, if you're a a politician in the Republican Party, one of the worst things that someone can accuse you of being is a rhino. A Republican in name only. Well, what Jesus is saying here about this church is that they are a church church. That is alive in name only. They're not actually alive. They're dead. They enjoy a good reputation of being alive. They have a name of being alive. They might even think of themselves as alive. But they're dead. Now, what he makes clear in verse 2 is that they're, they're not entirely dead. Uh, there is some part of them that, is, that remains alive, but even that is about to die. They're mostly dead. They're on their way to being totally dead as a church. In contrast to the last couple of churches that we've looked at, you know, in, in the church at Pergamum, you know, there were some who held the teaching of Balaam. In the church of Thyatira, there were some who were being led astray by Jezebel. But here in Sardis, there are only a few who, haven't, who aren't part of this dying church. The majority of the church, this church is mostly dead. So what is it? What's the problem with the church in Sardis? He doesn't name any sort of false teaching that they believe that they shouldn't. He doesn't identify any specific moral problem like he does in some of the others. So what's the problem? Well, what he says is that I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And he, he indicates that they need to remember what they received and heard. That they had forgotten it. That they weren't 
keeping it. So their problem wasn't that they were doing these wrong things. It's that they weren't doing the right things. It wasn't that they believed the wrong things. It's that they weren't living out the right things that they had once believed and kept. It was a church that was asleep. It was a church that was spiritually in slumber. They were in a spiritual coma. It was a lampstand that had a smoldering wick. Maybe this church had grown complacent because they had a good name. We're known for being alive. Everyone thinks well of us. And so they grow complacent. They think, oh, we're good. We're fine. What's wrong with us? Everyone thinks we're alive. So what's the problem? Or maybe it was a church that was not doing the right things, not living out the word of God because they were afraid of getting a bad name. Maybe they, they thought, well, you know, we, we have a good reputation, so we can just kind of fly under the radar. We don't want to get too extreme here. We don't want to get too radical here because then that might have negative consequences for us in our community. Or, or maybe if, if, I, if I'm too bright as a witness, then that might have negative consequences for me with my coworkers. If I get too radical as a follower of Jesus, maybe that impacts negatively the way that my friends at school view me. Maybe they're afraid of a bad name, and so they're content with their reputation as it is. They're content with thinking of themselves as alive when they're actually in a spiritual coma. So what does Jesus tell them? Wake up! Wake up! No one's falling asleep in this sermon today. <laughs> Wake up! That's what Jesus calls this church to do, because spiritually speaking... Yeah, maybe they didn't have this false, this heresy that, that was invading the church. Maybe they didn't have sin that was corrupting the church. But they didn't have anything going on in the church. They were spiritually asleep. They were nearly dead. And Jesus warns them in the, in the last part of verse 3, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. It's not totally clear if he's talking about his, his bodily second coming, that, uh, that day that is yet to come, or if he's talking about maybe more in a spiritual sense, kind of like he said to Ephesus, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. Um, it's not totally sure what he's coming, but here's one thing that we know for sure. When Jesus comes to your church, you do not want him coming against you. You thought it was bad, Sardis, when your enemies climbed up that cliff and invaded your city wall, wait till Jesus, the king of kings, with the sword coming out of his mouth and a robe dipped in blood comes to your church against you. He's calling this church to wake up. Did you know that it's possible for a church to be known for being alive but be dead? It's a scary thought, really, to think that a church might enjoy a reputation of being alive, a reputation of being a healthy church, a thriving church. But Jesus looks at them and says they're, they're dead. 
Do you know it's also possible for an individual to think that they are spiritually alive, to be known for being alive, but actually be dead, to have the appearance of spiritual life, to bear the name Christian, but to actually be far from God, to not know Jesus. So what's the solution? How can we know? Well, Jesus says in verse 3, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. The solution that Jesus gives is go back to the gospel. Look back to what Jesus said. Go back to the gospel. Go back to what you heard at first. When you heard it, you received it and you wanted to keep it, but you've lost it, he says. You're not keeping that which you once heard and once received, and therefore you have entered into spiritual slumber. But he says, go back, remember that good news of the gospel that Jesus saves, that he forgives sinners by his grace, that he transforms dead hearts by his grace. Through faith and his cross and his resurrection. He transforms people from being slaves to sin and dead in sin. To being free in Christ and alive in Christ. Go back to that good news that Jesus gives empowering grace to be a faithful witness in the world. Go back to the mission Go back to the mission that Jesus has given. You're a lampstand. You're supposed to shine brightly. And not worry about what, other, what name you might have among other people. Whether it's good or bad, Jesus calls us to go back to the mission. To go back to being a lampstand. So what do we do as a church? What do we do to make sure, well, how do we know that we're not just living in a name that's alive, but we really are alive. Go back to the mission. Go back to the gospel. Look up to who Jesus is, his authority. We're seeking to be faithful to him. Asking the question, how do we remain faithful to him? What does Jesus think of us? What does Jesus say to us? What is it that we heard that he wants us to keep Whatever name we might have, whatever name we might want, whatever name someone else might give us, what's most important is what does Jesus say? What did Jesus tell us in the gospel? What, what it truly means to be alive. In order to answer that, in order to consider what it really means to be alive as an individual, we have to go back to the gospel and recognize that spiritual Deadness means being a slave to sin. And being spiritually alive isn't going to church. Being spiritually alive isn't calling yourself a Christian. Being spiritually alive isn't just trying your best to do some good deeds uh, on a day-to-day basis. No, being spiritually alive means giving yourself to Jesus. Surrendering yourself to Jesus. Putting your faith and your confidence in Him alone. Repenting of living for yourself. Repenting from trusting in yourself. Repenting from your works. Repenting from your sin. Turning away from that and trusting your life to Jesus. Giving your life to Jesus. Trusting in His salvation. His cross. His resurrection. Him for forgiveness and grace. 
and what it means to be alive as a church, as a church that is fueled by that gospel, that is dependent on Jesus, that is humbled by the reality of sin, that is empowered by the grace of the cross and the resurrection, that is devoted to the mission of Jesus, to be a lampstand that shines into the darkness. So we need to look up to who Jesus is. We need to look back to what Jesus said We also need to look forward to what Jesus promises. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. We'll start with just verse 4. He says, Yet you, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So the good news for this church in Sardis is that not everyone in the church was spiritually asleep. There were some who had not uh, soiled their garments. It's this picture of being corrupt, of not being a faithful follower of Jesus, of not being what he intends for his people to be. The implication is those that had fallen into the slumber, that had fallen into this spiritual coma, they were, uh, they were, they had soiled their garments. They had uh, their, their garments that were meant to be clean and meant to be pure, they had defiled that by their spiritual apathy, by not being faithful to what they were supposed to be as a church. So the good news is that there are those in Sardis, even in the midst of this dead church, there are still some who are faithful to Jesus. And Jesus promises that he has not overlooked them. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Well, so what does that mean? What is he getting at? Well, he goes on and explains more of what that idea is of walking with Jesus and why. What does it mean to be worthy? Look at verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. It's the one who conquers. We've seen this time and time again in these letters. This idea, this promise that the one who conquers will receive reward. The idea of conquering is the one who makes it to the end. Who perseveres from where we are now until that day that we see Jesus face to face, that perseveres in faithfulness, that stays on the straight and narrow, that stays steady and keeps their eyes on Jesus and follows him faithfully until the end, reaches the end faithful, reaches the end with garments that haven't been stained. It's the one who, who doesn't uh, give in to uh, the, the lies and the seduction of Jezebel. It's the one who doesn't give in to the teaching of Balaam. It's the one who doesn't lose heart in the midst of persecution. It's the one who, uh, who doesn't forsake their first love, as we saw in Ephesus. It's the one who doesn't forget what he's received and heard, but keeps it. Who stays awake, as we see here. How, how does that happen? How does it happen that we conquer? Well, Jesus tells us in Revelation 12 and verse 11, he j- gives John this vision. John says, or John writes, 
and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. So we conquer first and foremost because Jesus already conquered. We're worthy not because of how good we do. We don't conquer because of how much strength we have. Our confidence is not in our ability, first and foremost. Our confidence is not in our ability to persevere and to remain faithful and steadfast and unmoved by the world. No, our confidence, first and foremost, is in the blood of the Lamb. The one who died to free us from sin. The one who rose again, conquering every enemy. Who rose victorious over every power. Who is enthroned high and exalted above every other throne. It's his victory that gives us victory. It's trusting in him. It's by his grace, not by our might, that we conquer. We will conquer because he already did conquer. And the way we carry out his victory, the way that we persevere, is by the word of our testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. That's what it means to conquer to stay faithful to Jesus, to, to live in his victory, to continue to bear witness to the grace that will bring us home, to continue to bear witness to the power that we have through Jesus' resurrection, to know, to have confidence in the grace that Jesus has purchased for us through his death and resurrection, and to continue to remain faithful, to love this gospel to, that has saved us, that has changed us, to love this gospel more than we love breath in our lungs. Because we know that the only way we conquer is not in and of ourselves. It's through the blood of Jesus. He promises that those who conquer, in verse 5, will be clothed in white garments. He promises purity. He promises being clothed in his righteousness. In chapter 7 and verse 14, we see this picture. As John looks and he sees a great multitude that no one could number. This is looking at chapter 7 verse 9. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And then in verse 13, one of the elders addressed me, John, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We will receive on that day, a reward that Jesus has purchased for us. We will receive on that day white garments, a, a permanent status of righteousness and purity before God that we can't lose because we didn't earn. It's something that Jesus earned for us. Garments washed white in His blood. He also says here in this verse that 
the one who conquers, I will never blot, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. In chapter 17 and verse 8, we see this picture again. This book of life, the names that are written in it. And in this verse, he tells us that the names written in the book of life were written there from the foundation of the world. Those who are saved by Jesus, those who will make it to the end, don't have their names written in the book of life because they persevered so well. Or because they conquered so well. Or because they were really good at staying awake and not falling into spiritual slumber. No, they have their name in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. It's by grace. It is grace that's unearned. It's grace that is not that we do not deserve. It's the grace of God from before the foundation of the world. And he has seen, he has determined, he has chosen that those who he saves are permanently in the book of life. Their names, their individual names are written in his book of life, never to be blotted out. That is the name that we ought to care about. Sardis was content and complacent with their name of being alive. They cared more about what other people said about them, the name that they had before other people, than they did about whether or not their name was in the book of life. But what Jesus calls us to is to care more about the fact that our name is written in the book of life than the name that we have among other people, or the name that we would want to keep for ourselves. Jesus told his disciples, you may remember, uh, rejoice not that, that, that you have authority over demons, but rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. What Jesus calls us to care about is what he has done for us. Because it is that that empowers us then to persevere. It's that that empowers us then to be shining lampstands in the world. And then lastly, he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Again, the church at Sardis was concerned too much about what people were saying about them. They were complacent uh, in in their uh, good name, their good reputation they had had. Maybe they were afraid of getting a bad name. But we need to be far less concerned about what other people say about us and more concerned about what Jesus says before his father and before his angels. We don't want to be living for a community that says, man, have you heard what's happening at Rocky Point Baptist Church? That's not the reward that we need to seek. We don't need to be living for the reward of, man, have you heard what's going on there? Have you heard about that? Or have you heard about what they're, or have you heard about that? No. The reward that we want, the reward that Jesus promises to the one who conquers is that Jesus confesses the name of the one who conquers before his father. It's what Jesus says before his father. It's Jesus saying to his father, have you heard what I've done for your glory through this church on earth? Have you heard the, the, the name of this church that is alive and that is living 
according to my authority, by my power, remembering the gospel, depending on my grace, living out what I have purchased for them. It's a reward that we ought to look for, that we ought to be seeking is what Jesus says about us. The reward that's, that is Jesus giving the well done, good and faithful servant. And not what we think of ourselves, not what someone else thinks of ourselves, but what Jesus thinks. And what I hope you've seen in all of these rewards is that ultimately, these come because of what Jesus has already done for us. The way we carry this out, the way we live out this life of remaining faithful, of not falling into spiritual slumber, of not falling into a spiritual coma, is by depending on the gospel. Depending on the grace of Jesus through the cross and the resurrection. Um, so our 15-month-old daughter, Selah, uh, has been walking since March. Which, pray for us, because she is into absolutely everything. And, you know, we were told whenever, we were, uh, whenever she was younger and we were trying to get her to walk, we were told, you know, you think you want her to walk. But just wait until she starts walking. You'll wish you had put it off a lot longer. And uh, so it's, it's, it's crazy. But we, we did want her to walk. And every, every step along the way, every milestone that she crossed, we got so excited. Uh, and so she would, you know, sit up on her own for the first time. We were like, yay, you did it. She started crawling on her belly. And we're like, yay, you did it. Uh, she would go from that to, to crawling on all fours. Like, yeah, you did it. She went from there to, to the, oh man, I remember the first time she stood up on her own. She was a little shaky, but she was standing up on her own. We're like, yeah, you did it. When she started taking her first steps, we're so proud of her. Say, yeah, you did it. As we look forward to that day that we see Jesus face to face, as we look forward to that day where we're standing in a robe washed in the blood of the Lamb, where we're standing having, having conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by His gospel, when we're standing before Him with a name written in His book of life that He put there before we had uttered a word, before we had done anything, there's no doubt in my mind that when we get to that moment, we are going to look to Jesus and say, you did it. You did it. I'm not here because of how well I conquered. I'm not well. I'm not here because of how well I persevered, how much I did. I'm here because of your blood, because of your life, because of your resurrection, because you gave me the strength to persevere when I couldn't carry on. Because you gave me the strength to repent even when it looked like I was spiritually dead. You were the one who brought me here. May our confidence come not from what we think of ourselves, not from what others think of us, but may we have our confidence that we'll reach that day and see Jesus face to face. Because in this day, we are looking to Jesus. May our confidence be totally in Jesus and his power 
and his grace. Let's pray together. Father, we don't want to fool ourselves and think that we're alive when we're not. We don't want to just depend on our reputation or the name that we've made for ourselves. Or, or we want to look to Jesus. And we know that it is only through him that we can have security. It's only through him that we can have confidence. It's only through him that we can repent where we need to, to strengthen what remains. It's only through him that we will conquer. It's only through his blood that we will have robes washed white. It's only through his work on the cross and in his resurrection that our name is in the book of life. And so, Lord, as we seek, as we long to make it to that day where we will see him face to face, Lord, would we look Put our eyes on Jesus for strength, for confidence, for power to make it to that day. And may we have confidence that we will because his work is finished. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.